Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Career Services Assistant Director Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And today's illustrious guest on our show is... Brian Swank, Senior Instructor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics, and also the Director of University Seminar. Welcome. So you got two titles. That's why we have to have you do it, because we <laughs> we might have got one, but there's no way we're getting both. So welcome. Glad to have you today. All right. Well, let's just, you know, we haven't just gone back to the beginning for a while with any of our guests. So Brian, if you could just, you know, do 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 the music that takes you way back in the day, tell us... Where did Brian come from? How did Brian find Northwest? Just tell us your story. All right. So my dad met my mom in Kansas City. Like, do we, is that how far back? We sure. Went? I am totally good with that. <laughs> I mean, let's say I'm born. Okay. So uh, I grew up in Drexel, Missouri, south of Kansas City, about 30 miles. That's what I always used to say. There's probably creep. It may be closer now. I don't know. I haven't measured in a while. Uh, so it was a very small town. One of the reasons that I ended up choosing Northwest for my undergrad was because of the size. So when we look at Drexel, there was like a thousand people. If you looked at the population sign, and I'm pretty sure that that counted cows, cats, and dogs also within the city limit. So um, very small, uh, had like 300 people in our K through 12 school building. Uh, which was really neat. When I was in fifth grade, I could look down this long hallway that went past administration offices and then kind of see up into the high school wing. And I could see my brother at his locker when I was at my fifth grade locker. Like that's just the size of the school. And then I graduated with about 24 people. So then I was, you know, looking for schools, um, had three places that I checked out. And for me, uh, one, there was familiarity. My older brother had come to Northwest and graduated. And so I'd been here for all kinds of events, moving him in, um, homecoming events, family weekends. So I was used to campus, um, but also it just felt right. And it also matched my career goals really well because I was an elementary education major. I was very attracted to the on-campus lab school where I could do observations and start learning about that craft of teaching um, during my undergrad. So so did you always want to be a teacher? Like that was kind of a thing as you were growing up? No, um, I was really in my high school years, not sure which way I was going to go. Am I going to be like a pastor, youth pastor? Am I going to do band directing? I liked music and, you know, and it really just kind of came down to one summer, the summer before my senior year, working at a youth camp and getting to work with third and fourth graders. I was in the cabin and there was this kid named John. And every morning he woke up the same way. He's on the top bunk. It had a pitched roof. And every morning he sat up quickly and bonked his head. And I just got such a kick out of that. I laughed every morning. I'm like, okay, this makes the decision. I want to work with kids. <laughs> they're going to entertain me. Honestly, that's kind of what it came down to. So chose the major and then found the school that fit that well. Excellent. I didn't know you were from Drexel. I actually, I was a recruiter before I had this job and Drexel was part of my territory. Okay. And I loved that school because if I was early enough, it was an eighth hour, like last period visit was when I could talk to the juniors and seniors. But if I went early enough, I could read to the kindergartners because that's what the counselor did before. So I always went early because it's like, I want to read to the kids. Like that's more fun than talking to the seniors. So I love that school. Cause it's like, you know, those K-12 schools are like the best to visit. Yeah. I feel like, cause you see it all. Like if you're sitting in the lunchroom, like you see kindergarten through seniors and it's awesome. So yeah. very cool. Travis probably influenced like six classes of students <laughs> by reading to them kindergarten. <laughs> right. And the counselor loved it because she didn't have to do anything for the hour. So it was like, oh, we have a guest. He's going to read to you. And then she'd go do other things for the you know half hour or whatever. You know, how many other universities are saying, oh, let me also teach kindergarten while I'm here and talk to seniors. Yeah, Way yeah it was go. great. That's why Travis works here, because he's the best, because right. I split. Something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the lab school experience. Was it everything you dreamed it would be? Oh, it totally was. So that was back in the area of Mrs. Marion in first grade. Linda Healer in fifth and sixth grade. And that's that's where I had my experiences. So that's who I remember the best. And you could not have more polar opposites, I feel like, 
two people that cared deeply about students, but showed that in very different ways. And I learned so much from being in their rooms for practicum. So from Mrs. And they're like legend. They're like teacher legends. legends. Absolutely. People don't know that. They're like legendary. Yes. So learning that that softer side and that fun side, uh, Joanne Marion also happened to be a member of our church. And so she taught Sunday school, the youngest Sunday school class to, to our kids. And so getting to see her in both settings was amazing, but it was pretty much the same person. And it was routine. Routine was huge. We're always going to know what's to expect it. We're always going to prepare you. My wife still laughs about every time she tries to make an anchor chart for her classroom that she she hears Mrs. Marion say, is there a border on that? Because if there's not a border, that's not going up in this classroom. And the border had to be something with a repeating pattern around it because she was integrating math at the same time. And, and so amazing. And then on the other side of things, the complete opposite end of the hallway in Horace Mann is the fifth and sixth grade. And Mrs. Healer was a stickler for discipline and rules and knowing expectations. So not that much different it, it just wasn't, I, I guess, not a sing-songy, but in both rooms, there was a definite, there were definite high expectations that had to be met all the time. So lab school experience was fabulous. Loved it. Yes. So how did you get from wanting to teach elementary school to working at Northwest? Did you work in schools in the elementary school setting for a while or? I did. So that was definitely like, I always thought, you know, that would be kind of neat later. Maybe after I retire, I, I never thought I'd get here when I did. So when I started out, I got my undergrad at that time, the elementary program allowed you to have kind of a concentration area. So I chose a computer emphasis, thought that was going to be great, learned all kinds of different things about using like Microsoft Word to be able to send form letters, which ended up transferring into elementary thinking, oh, how easy it is to make report cards and newsletters by doing mail merge and getting all the specific information in there. We did a lot with Excel which is to this day why it's one of my favorite things. And I just got this cup recently. Oh, this calls for a spreadsheet. I am so proud of this. Oh, Everything tastes better out of that cup. <laughs> it does. Oh, and if it doesn't, I can track data on it and find out why. It'll be great. So when I first was hired, I went into one of Missouri's immense classrooms, and that was here in Maryville at Eugene Field. And this was a program that put one computer at a desk that two students shared. So it was the start of that idea of getting to one-to-one -one in a classroom. Um, and our school at the time had four immense classrooms like that. So I was constantly integrating things from the internet and all these different programs I'd learned. So it was totally applicable to what I was doing. So taught like that for a while. I've asked students that I run into sometimes, like I've had students at Northwest that were in my fourth grade classroom. And I just curious, like, what do you remember about me in fourth grade? That'd be great to know. And one of the things that always comes up is the Revolutionary War unit. And so we would take newspapers because we were also in newspapers and education classrooms. So connecting kids to news and seeing, you know, how can we find resources and learn about things? So we would use the newspapers for the learning purposes, but then I'd have this stack left over. So then at the time of the Revolutionary War, we would make musket balls out of those, wad them all up. And I had red pennies for the British and the rest of us were in plain clothes and we would act out different battles and, and they really remember that. Like that's the way the first thing that comes up. So did that for years, uh, loved it, moved on to third grade and got this new classroom that was huge. It was another Ement style classroom. I'm like, this is amazing. This is where I will retire this room. I like, I had a window box for plants. Like you could not beat this place. And I did that for a year because this other position came open in the school. So we have um, title math and title reading at Eugene Field, where students can go to get extra support in those areas. And uh, the position opened up and I thought, wow, what a neat thing it would be to just focus on math. And it was something that I'd loved forever, like growing up through high school, enjoyed math class, had a fantastic math teacher. And so I'll do this, I'll do this math thing. Um, the funny thing is, kind of depending on where your life is going to go sometimes, I had also done a lot of hours even master's levels hours in social studies. So there was another program I got tied in with because of that revolutionary war idea, because of the social studies that I taught, I got into this other program that started doing some grad work. We went on trips and got to see like historical places up close and then think about how can we bring that back to our students. So I also saw a track at that time for myself. Maybe I'll be a middle school social studies teacher. Maybe, maybe something could change here. 
because I knew I always kind of liked the idea of specializing rather than teaching everything. How could that eventually go? So this math position in the school opened up and I was able to start teaching all grade levels math. And at that time, we kind of had a vision that I came up with with the principals and said, what if we ended this idea of just a pullout program that those who are struggling always just come to me? What if I start pushing out and kind of move around the different classrooms? I'm still open to doing some pullout, but what would it do if we think about the overall instruction in the school? And that was a totally bold move for me because I can't say that at that point I was any amazing math teacher. And I soon found out I wasn't. Like when I started teaching with others, I was like, oh, I'm learning a lot just by moving to these different classrooms. So that was a fantastic point of mentorship and professional development in my career. So I'm doing that job for three years. For the first year, you know, you just jump into a new position. You're just trying to figure it out. So that was great. Uh, The second year happened to be that a master's program came online at Northwest and across the state for the elementary math specialist program. And so this was a collaborative effort for universities across our state, which doesn't happen very often, Uh, spearheaded by um, one of the math ed instructors at MU who said, I want to improve teachers across Missouri for teaching math to make us more comfortable, to make us excited to teach it, to make it accessible to more students. So this program, then basically, they all took turns designing the different courses, the different institutions, like they took a whole program of study and Northwest said, we'll do these two classes. Another school said, we'll do this. And then they shared all the resources and you would take the classes from an institution that you're closest to. So I was here in Maryville. I started my master's at Northwest and others were getting the same idea around the state. So it took me two years to complete that. That was my last two years of three years in that title math position. And I was finishing up my work August or summer of 15. And then at that time, Dr. Jenny Wall and Dr. Christine Benson from the math department here, who were also instrumental in getting the EMS program started at Northwest and being part of that collaborative effort, they reached out and said, hey, we just happen to have a position open. And I really didn't know at the time what that would mean. Basically, the position I have now as an instructor. And I said, well, I will come check it out. Why not? And it was one of the best interviews I have ever been in because I went into it knowing I absolutely love my job. So I had been teaching title math and getting to work with professional development. It was the same time Common Core was really being pushed and implemented. And so I was teaching. I was learning from amazing teachers as I moved around. I was getting to lead workshops for our teachers. But like, you got to see this one other thing. And I've incorporated this into one of my methods classes. But is it okay for the guest to bring a guest on the show? I don't even know. I forgot to ask. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. Everything is okay on our podcast. (laughs) Okay, that's so great. All right. So my guest is this guy that used to go to kindergarten classes with me. And his name is Monty. And I called him Monty the Math Mutt. And as he, we traveled around to different garden classrooms, he kind of became my math god. Get it? Yeah. Okay. So Monty and I would go into different classrooms. And this happened because in the beginning of my time, it was just kindergarten pullout. I never did go in and do whole group instruction with kindergarten. So the next year, my principal was like, we have too many kids kids coming into kindergarten, we're adding another section. And I said, that is really unfortunate because what that means is that we only had five specials for people to have a plan time, like art and music, those those times when the kids go out of the room, like that's too bad because we only have five of those. And that means that that sixth teacher, like every six days, someone's not going to get that plan time. And she goes, oh no, they're going to get it because we're thinking you could do another exploratory class, but have it be math-based. And I'm like, would that be like with an entire class? Because I could handle six or eight at my kidney bean table for small group. And she's like, oh yeah, a whole class. And that was terrifying to me. The first day did not go great. It was at one point, I remember looking up and saying, hey, can you come out from under there, like looking under the tables? And it wasn't just one kid. It was like two, like the very first day of kindergarten. And I had to jump in. So Then Monty comes along and we start doing these lessons about counting. And one of the first ones, they have plates. And this is one that I recreate with our method students here at Northwest now. So I I show them a pattern of dots and they have to recreate it. We call it the game Kibbles and Bits. 
And this is kind of a great transition story to say how what I was doing at the elementary level somehow works at the college level. It does. And so we were in math methods talking about, you know, dot patterns and this idea of subitizing, recognizing a, a pattern, and they have to make it on their plate. And then Monty comes around the classroom, whether it's kindergarten or college, and goes, nom, 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 nom. And if they're wrong, he's like, yeah. So then to add to the Monty story, if you ever visit my office, you might look at my bookcase and think, I don't know, he may be too young, but was Swank in the village people? Is that possible? Because there's all these weird hats that I have in costumes on top of my bookcase. Like every week we went back to kindergarten, Monty and I would have a different story. So one time he was a knight in shiny armor. Another time he was a pirate. Another time he was a firefighter. So this is all to say, I had a job that I loved at Eugene Field. I didn't really plan to go anywhere. And I took this idea for an interview at Northwest thinking, this will be interesting. I'll just see what it's like. So went that day, found out, wait, there's an office. I would have an office with a door that closes and like <laughs> alone time. What is that to an elementary teacher? You don't get that. So that was intriguing, but more so it was really hitting that part of me that had really enjoyed doing all of the professional development in our school. That idea of having an impact on more classrooms. Um, I had moved from my own classroom where I was teaching math to getting to have that experience to teach more students. I got to go through all classrooms in our school then and, and have that outreach. But then I thought, wow, how, well, how powerful an impact that could be if I could be in a classroom where I was teaching future teachers these methods to go out. You know, halfway through the day, I'm like, do I want this? Like, I might want this. But again, it was a great interview because I didn't carry their way. If, it did, if they didn't accept it, I'm like, I got a great job. I love this. So that's kind of how it came to be that I was at Northwest. Uh, one of the scariest moments was during our interview process in the math department, we require that someone teach a math lesson. So part of the interview, I went into a math ed classroom and it just happened to be fundamentals of math, which I teach regularly now. But it happened to be the day that we were teaching about the normal distribution, that graph about how if you get enough data, it, it gets that bell curve. And like, I hadn't done anything with that. That's not part of elementary curriculum necessarily. And it was the day that we were talking about estimates of that. So there's this rule that with the first and second and third deviations, you know a certain amount of the population is going to be there. So I dove into it that day and started teaching. And I was really trying to make a connection. Like, why would you ever want to know this? So I threw in there that like, you need to know about this because standardized tech standardized testing. You're going to get results back from the map test and need to know percentile rank and be able to explain that to a parent, whether it's reading or math scores. What does that mean? And then I also, there's this standard in first grade that says we need to be able to know how to take apart numbers, break them down and put them back together. So I need to know that five has many ways that could be broken down. It could be four, it could be one, it could be three, it could be two, stuff like that. So I started taking this graph and these percentages and showing how I could find the different small sections, which was going to be important to solve some of their homework problems, and how I can determine that by breaking down those numbers and using the symmetry of that graph and all that. So I got done teaching that day and was just like, I have no idea if that's what they wanted, like no idea how all that went and got done. And one of those math ed instructors said, I have never thought to teach that day that way. Like that makes so much sense to break down the numbers to help them see where they come from. That's where I was very apprehensive about ever taking this job because I knew that all the other math ed faculty had started out as secondary people. And I was an elementary person, elementary degree from the beginning. And so I was very open about that in my interview. And there was a point where I was even trying to talk Christine Benson, who was chair at the time, out of hiring me. I'm like, but remember, I'm elementary. And she pointed back to that lesson and said, yes, but none of the rest of us know how to talk like that and make connections to that elementary content like you did today. So I'm like, okay, it's your funeral. You know, we'll see what happens. I'm going to call that the Brian Swink method from here on out. That's I'll fine. Talk you out of hiring me. Yeah. <laughs> we need yeah, to consider I mean, all possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Convince me you want me. I'm I'm just here. You, you said you'd buy me lunch today. So 
I'm here. But what a great, also, I think, what a great example of how to be comfortable in an interview. Like you say, I'm doing what I love. I have no, like, this is risk-free for me. Like I'm showing up and having a good time, right? Like seeing the possibilities of the world. I think a lot of times people put too much pressure on themselves, especially the college students, right? Like it feels so Mm -hmm. that you feel so desperate to get a job, but really if you can somehow set yourself up to be going into these interviews and feel like they're risk-free, like that's when the best of you comes out, I think. Yeah. And then it was it was later in the math department to go right along with that. Um, it was my first hiring committee in the department that Dr. Benson kept saying. Uh, so remember, on paper, this person already looked good. So our job isn't really at this point. It, it's partly to make sure that they're a good fit for our department and for Northwest. But she looked at everybody in the department and said, people, we have to prove that we're worthy that we're people that they would want to work with. We have to sell them on us right now as much as they need to sell us. And like that, I'd never seen that side of it before or thought of it that way. Yeah, because as a job seeker, you're like, oh, the pressure's on me, right? Yes, but it it doesn't have to be. And that can be freeing. Very freeing. Yeah. Especially for those math ed kids that are so in demand right now that we have school districts at career day going, do you have any math ed majors? We really want to hire them. So they have some power, I'd say. I do hope we realize that. Yes. Yeah. And we had a lot that came, by the way. I was just looking at the data today. You'd be proud of me. Yes. There was a lot of, I'm I'm pretty sure every math ed major that's graduating came to career day. So. Oh yeah, I know. They're on my cup. They're left. I got that (laughs) column. It's AB right here. (laughs) All right. So you took the job. What was the most difficult transition going from being an elementary school teacher to like then teaching at the college level? Honestly, some of the content. And so this is something that I would say going right around the idea of, you know, career seeking and career building is the importance of mentors. And so being upfront in my interview process and saying, I'm a little worried about some of that. I said, but, but you've seen my work in the program for EMS, you know what I'm capable of. So I will learn. I said, but I may not know everything right away. So they immediately set me up with a mentor. So Dr. Jenny Wall had an office right next to me. And we would, for that first semester, meet weekly and just kind of talk about what's coming up. Uh, They were also very supportive because in our department, we want to make sure everybody is getting the same experience. So it shouldn't that we want to get rid of that teacher lottery idea. It shouldn't matter who you have for a class that it's run the same way. So in our math ed courses, we merge all the sections into one common course Canvas site so that they have the same materials, they have the same exams, they have the same assignments, same scoring guides. So all of that just brings extra quality, I feel like, to what we're putting out there. And so then by having that mentorship on top of it, we knew we were getting that same level of instruction going in. And that is a very common practice throughout just K-12 education to be assigned a mentor and to have regular meetings and learn about that. So that's an important part of growing in this uh, teaching profession. And I was so excited to see it existed in higher education as well. So then it just, it was getting over the fear of that first couple of days. And so I'm psyching myself up. I'm all ready. I've had my opener that I was going to do. And I go out into the hallway that day and Dr. Benson is standing there and She's like, all right, Swank, I've got some words to get you through this first hour. I know you're going to do great. Here you go. Fake it till you make it. That was fantastic advice. So got in the classroom. They responded really well. And what's interesting about solid math instruction, when you are working to be an engaging instructor that gets the students, like what I learned from one of the best teachers at Eugene Field is, if I go home tired at the end of the day, then I did it wrong. My students should be going home more tired at the end of the day because they were thinking so much that they're exhausted. And so when you take that approach into the math classroom, the strategies are the exact same, whatever you're doing. So you're you're putting content out there, you're starting a problem and asking, what do you think? And getting that discussion built. So my classes, I would hope you would come in and see that they sound much different than the typical math classroom you would expect to sit in on or that you might have experienced in the past. So just getting that over that initial fear. And then, you know, for the first few weeks, people kept asking me, what's it like? How, you know, 
what's the difference between teaching in elementary and teaching college? And like, well, you know, of course the height difference is going to be. Um, they they mostly don't hide under the desks anymore. They, they right? were not. You know what? The behaviors were so much different. You know, if they were having a bad day, they might throw something at the elementary school. They might climb under their desk. They would be sent to the office. If they're having a bad day here, they just maybe don't show up. Yeah. You know, our elementary ed population or early child or special ed, you know, they're they're here to be teachers. So I know that there's behaviors that other instructors and faculty deal with on campus that I don't see from our subset. So that's all good. Um, but the one thing I could say is different is sometimes college students cry more than kindergartners. And that's okay. Like we need that sometimes. That's college how we, is hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is a struggle. Yep. That's a good transition to your other position. So college is hard. You're also <laughs> helping the students who are coming in transition in. So how did how did you get that gig? And what what do you do with you know helping the university seminar students? Yeah, getting into seminar that was a trip. So uh, when I was an undergrad, obviously I had some form of first year. It was called freshman seminar at the time. Now it's university seminar. It's run very similar in many respects. Back then they still had peer advisors, and so. After my freshman year, I partnered with someone in the education department, and I was their peer advisor for the last three years of college. So loved having that experience and getting to help others who were coming in and kind of be that mentor for them, and then started teaching Eugene Field. And then when I got here, worked for a year, and then you're eligible to start teaching university seminar with that master's degree, one year of experience. And so the very first year I was eligible, I started teaching seminar and did that for several years. And then Dr. Allison Hoffman was director of student success here and invited me over for coffee just to kind of talk. And she was meeting with a few people who she was kind of seeing as a possibility for taking over that position of director of seminar. And I'd always, like, I remember saying this, you know, a job that I would never want, director of university seminar. It was great to teach, but I just thought, oh my gosh, upfront, all the work to do, the training that happens to keep the course site going, to get all those updates made, to, and then the communication that's needed, like that is, you could ask my wife, communication is not my strong suit. So just becoming director of seminar, I can say, opened up new pathways in my brain that I had never had to use. And the more I do it, the more it makes sense and it's natural now and it flows, but it was, it was work in the beginning. And again, it came down to mentorship into that position. I had weekly meetings or bi-weekly bi meetings, maybe with Dr. Hoffman, who was kind of asking questions, where are we headed on this? How is this going? But also there were so many different systems to learn. I, as a first year instructor had nothing to do with banner or learning the ins and outs of the registration process. That wasn't me. I'd never advise students. So there was a lot that I had to learn on the back end also. So she was instrumental in that. Another huge mentor was uh, Jen Pitts, who now works in the administration building in the West Wing. And at the time, she was the generalist here for student success, working and supporting first-year advisors, seminar, and the academic success tutoring program and SI. So between those two, they just gave such solid advice and set me up for success early on, just helping me learn all those pieces. But yeah, in the beginning, it's another interview, honestly, that I went into when I finally made the decision, okay, I always said I didn't want to do that, but eh. <laughs> and you know, right behind me, both of these times, I would like, when I saw the position for Northwest and first thought about it, my wife is standing there going, you should totally do that you would be great at that. And I honestly have a lot of self-doubt sometimes and think, eh, no, I don't think I could do that. But she's been an awesome cheerleader. So my wife, Jen, is like, no, go, go try that. So in the Northwest interview, she's rooting me on. In this one, she's like, you have a job. Again, she reminded me, you're going into an interview where you have a job and you like your job, right? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happens if you don't get this seminar gig? Do you not have the other job? No. And that cleared it up. It's like, okay, I'm just going to go have a conversation with people about what I think could change in this program, what I could bring, what we could keep and improve on. And 
now I'm director. The uh, only downside to all of that was that that interview was taking place December of, I think it was this magical year, 2019. So I started director January of 2020. All is going well. I'm, you know, kind of easing in because it's the spring and we don't have as many seminar sections. January to March was a breeze. I'm learning a lot. And then something happened in March of 2020. I might have to go back to my calendar. Oh no, it was the COVID pandemic. So there was a lot of learning with that about how to support instructors in an online learning environment. And then all the prep work we were all doing to get ready for coming back that following fall. And on top of that, thinking the seminar stuff, I was also surviving myself, still teaching in the math department. So this kind of position for me is three-quarter time math department. That means I'm teaching nine of the regular 12 credits a semester that a faculty member would have on their plate, and then a quarter time as university seminar. So like one three-hour course load. So I'm still in that March period figuring out how to keep teaching online with all the rest of my courses and figure out what we're going to do with seminar. And now on the other side of it, it's almost, it's very comparable to raising kids. It's like, we did it. I don't know how, but we did that. And we don't ever want to do it again. (laughs) We got past it and it was great, but yep. See ya. So you did a uh, fantastic you. So I was teaching seminar at that time and you did a fantastic, you should receive a medal. You should have a little medal for your spreadsheet cup. Like that just was like <laughs> seminar director COVID year. Like you did a, an amazing job communicated. Well, like I felt very supported as a, a staff member who only taught seminar. That was terrifying for me to have to go in and, you know, we were teaching, Really, it was like a blended class. I don't know. Half the class was on Zoom. Half the class was in the classroom. And you had to keep track of attendance and where people were. And it was just, oh, it was a nightmare. And we couldn't have done that without our peer advisors, our student employees working with us, because they were also super great to help with all that stuff on the side, counting who's on Zoom, who's in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. It was a whole village that made that happen. I think another thing that helps, like I, I shared, I don't feel like I'm the best communicator at times. Like I, that's something I really have to work at. Uh, it kind of pulls in on that elementary side again. We used to do newsletters. We were expected in our school to have a weekly newsletter. And that's kind of what happens with seminar is that I'm preparing a newsletter to go out, especially during the fall when, when I've got new people teaching about here's everything that's happening, everything you need to be aware of. And I remember my first year of the director, I went home one night and I'm like, I don't know if I have just made a mistake, Jennifer. I said, I am now doing newsletters again. How did this happen? I thought I left that behind. Do you put borders on them? Do they have shapes around them? You should put borders on them. But I I do include some clip art and there's some consistencies to it. I think Mrs. Marion would approve. I think it'd be okay. Taking that position is, again, you talked about moving from doing the elementary teaching into influencing the teachers. That's exactly what you're doing here. Like you have the capacity now, not just to influence math teachers, but you're helping staff members like myself. Like you're influencing other people and encouraging them to take part, to be better educators, to participate in the community of education, for lack of a better word. Like. That's a huge, like a huge opportunity to influence peer advisors, to influence staff and faculty who are doing this like that. It's another like leverage point, right? Like level up there, swing level 10. (laughs) And what's kind of interesting about it is earlier I talked about how I learned from that third grade teacher in math that if the students go home more tired, I've done it well. And I approach that same thing when I'm thinking about trainings, the August trainings that I do for seminar, any kind of professional development that I lead. Like if I go to a conference and I'm doing a session, it is never me at the front of the room talking for 50 minutes. And like the seminar training, that's scheduled for like four hours. And I can't ever imagine sitting and watching someone for four hours. And so I pull a lot from elementary strategies, Um, Kagan Cooperative Learning. That was something the district paid for me at one time to go and attend. And those are all structures for learning that help engage students and give them a task to work on and then come back together and share. 
which is exactly how we want our math ed classrooms to be taught, is start to explore something, piece it together. Even if you don't solve it, come back together and share your strategies. Let's see what we've all learned together. And so I run trainings that way. And the first couple of times I was a little nervous, like, how's this going to go? What are people going to think? But then when I would do surveys, I was amazed at some of the comments, things like, I can't believe how fast that went. I'm like, fat, that was four hours. That was an afternoon of our lives. But they were just like, that was the most fun I've ever had in training. (laughs) Like, okay. But it's because they were engaged. So those practices, like, I don't know. It's at times I'm not doing anything special. I'm just involving others more than putting myself in there first. I think the secret too, like everybody expects because we're grownups that we should like be grown y. but the truth is we're all elementary students at heart. I mean, I know I am. So that maybe, is, you know, you just have to remember that. That is so true. That's why I make sure I try to bring some humor into things. You know, I love puns. So I bring those in whenever I can. Sometimes I'll put some dorky things on the slide. Like, I do remember this. My first year, I was trying to get that connection with students and say, you know, I'm okay. Let's trust each other. And every day I was putting up a math meme, different things that they could connect with, just jokes. In fact, it was kind of every day making fun of math a little bit with these memes. Um, One of them that comes to mind is like a triangle and it had X marked on one side and it said, find X. And so the student had just written, here it is. And then someone else in another one, it's like solve for X. And they're like, nope, math, I'm done finding your X. Just let that X go. It doesn't matter anymore. That relationship's over. So bringing that stuff in is kind of that brain break that people need sometimes, that little bit of humor. And it's just good brain research too, because we need that change of state. We can only listen for so long before we get something else to happen. So just like when you break up me talking and ask a question, the viewers later are going to be, okay, that's a little break for me. Now we're moving on to something else. And we all need that. One question on the math front before I then have a question on the career front. How do you address students who don't like math and maybe you're math educating, you know, math educators. So maybe that they're not part of that population, but you said you teach, you know, you teach all types of students, their their basic math classes. How do you address that sort of like math is bad or I don't like, I'm not good at math. Maybe that's what it is. It really starts with getting to know that student, getting that student to start talking about what they do know, connecting with where they are, and then talking about where we're going to be. In our math ed classes, we're constantly talking about this trajectory we can move through. There's concrete. That's why we have manipulatives in math. Like you might know about base 10 blocks to represent numbers. So anytime we can, we make the math visible through tools that we can put on the table, through a picture we can draw, or through just what we call the abstract, the numbers and symbols of math. And I constantly try to be relatable with students and talk about how mathematicians, when you boil it down, are just lazy people. We are lazy people who have just tried to figure out new ways to count faster. I just defined calculus for you. That's what that course is about. How can we count faster and more efficiently? And so part of that is our language. And we don't want to write out long sentences because that takes forever. So we figured out ways to summarize a word problem that might look like this into this equation that looks like this, just real compact. And it makes sense to us. And we want it to make sense to our students. So that's part of it. So it's the way that we teach. But I came in really knowing, especially from my master's program, that did a fantastic job of talking about procedural versus conceptual understanding, talked about teaching through the eight math practices and thinking about all the little things that great math people do. How do we bring that into our classroom? But also the idea of getting to that mindset. We have to change minds first, sometimes even hearts. Like, I know math has hurt you in the past, but I want this time to be different. Every first day that I teach fundamentals of math here at Northwest, there's a certain point in the first lecture that I'm going through, and I always write up a math fact wrong on the board. And I state it like it's the most right thing in the world. Three times six is 24. And I write it up there, and I've said it, and I keep going, and I keep teaching, but I'm watching for something. No one on the first day of college math is ever going to correct the teacher. It has not happened yet. But I look at my class. And there'll be somebody who looks like this. 
Can you see that? They're just like, they got this wrinkled from me. And I'm like, what are you thinking right now? And I'm in that moment setting up that stage that this isn't about me and my learning. This is about our learning in this classroom. And so from that day and that point on, I want them to know that I'm going to make mistakes because guess what? I am a human. Sometimes when you're talking and doing something, it doesn't come out the way you think it's going to happen. And so we set that up from day one. This is the way we need to run things. Question me if it doesn't make sense, because it could be that I made a mistake. It could be that you asking your question helps me understand what you didn't understand. And then there are still students who are so locked, they've got this wall up for math that they will not ask a question. And that's when I'm looking for foreheads constantly. So that was one thing about the pandemic that my teaching did not suffer. Learning names was terrible when all I could see was this and remembering them later when the masks fell off. But I could still see this. And so I could still teach. That's what got me through. So being able to just recognize, ooh, if I look out and I see half my class going, then I know I need to stop. And I don't know that all faculty do that. So that would be another one of those points that I can bring into seminar training and you know, talking with math educators in my classes about what they need to look for going out. The last piece I want to talk about in just getting to that mindset and helping reluctant learners is this picture that I'm going to put up here. And it's got kind of a collection here of images. So the first one, you're going to see these arrows. And I have loved this little poster since I found it. And it talks about success. And you see it here on both sides. You've got this arrow straight right to the point. And it says, this is success. And then there's the other one you see that's like, <laughs> but it, when you compare them side by side, they started at the same point and they end at the same point. And then you get this message, what people think success is a straight line, but what it really is, is this massive jumble and trying something, realizing it didn't work, trying again, getting yourself back on the track. Honestly, I feel like that squiggly line could be my career because it, it keeps bringing me back to center all around people who've mentored me from, you know, Mrs. Pat New in fourth grade when I started teaching and she was my mentor as a first year teacher to all of these other people I've been talking about throughout my interview with you about mentors who helped shape and helped me think and get to a certain point. And we need to know that life is messy and expect that. When you start to have a family and you're trying to go back for family gatherings, the Norman Rockwell picture of Thanksgiving where the family's around the table and they're bringing the turkey in, that is the worst image you can possibly have in your head for family. Because I keep talking to people, that's not what it's like. We all know the kids have their own table. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what it really should have been in that picture, but it's not. And so life is messy. And as, if we can accept that going in, then we can accept a whole lot of stuff. Okay, so math is going to be messy. Math is going to have mistakes in it. And I'm going to learn from those mistakes. I'm going to go forward. And so also on this same image, um, you're going to see a sign that hangs in my office in the top left corner that says mistakes are proof that you are trying. And this little plaque was something that the teachers at Eugene Field presented to me on my last day uh, before coming to Northwest, because that was something that had resonated with them through professional development. And so it means a lot to me to have that hanging in my office for students to come in and see that. Mistakes are proof that you're trying. When I do see students who are really, you know, working their tails off and like they've worked, but it, the score just hasn't caught up with their effort yet. And sometimes that will happen. And I, I send them that picture that's in the bottom left corner of this mouse near the mouse trap, And it just says, never give up. And my favorite part is the mouse has that little bike helmet on. Like, I'm going to get the cheese out of this trap. It's okay. So it's all about having those goals and working towards that. I mean, that's really the reason we started this podcast. We were kind of recognizing that no matter how much all of us who have a career 99.9% .9 of us, our paths have been windy and treacherous and we fall and we, we make all kinds of mistakes, but still young people, I mean, in college, 
they see someone who's in a, a, a leadership role or a, an advanced, even advanced individual contributor or a teacher or a C- CEO, and they think these people just automatically went from being students into like these roles, right? And it's so easy. I mean, even me, I, you know, it's so easy to judge someone else's success and think that it has been error-free and just breezy, right? And so we started the podcast basically to just talk to people and ask, hey, what were your failures and mistakes and other jobs that you've held? And we have how many, Travis, how many interviews have we done? About 125-ish right around there. Yeah, a lot. And we haven't had a straight path yet. It's always been the long and winding road, the unexpected, the I was very happy with my position, but I this other thing came up and I took it. I mean, that's we've heard that time and again from all levels of people, from students that are still in school to folks that are out in the industry that are alumni to faculty, like it's just a recurring theme throughout is that, you know, this is not where I expected to be, but boy, am I glad I'm here and I wouldn't change it if I could go back to it. Right. And the risk associated with some of those jumps also, like for my personal career and thinking, is this even going to work? Are my skills to teach elementary going to transfer here? Mm -hmm. What happens if they don't? And so life is full of those moments where mentors and cheerleaders like my wife have to be there and say, no, you, this, Mm -hmm. you've got to try, go, go try this thing that helps. And the worst happens is if you fail, you learn from it. Like that's, (laughs) we spend so much time telling college students like failure is not the worst thing that can happen. Sometimes it's really helpful. I know it sucks in the moment, but boy, you can learn a lot from it too. I want to show you another amazing picture. One thing that has always, that I always kind of thought, yeah, whatever. I've heard this a million times, how, we're teaching students and preparing them for jobs that don't exist yet. Mm-hmm. How many times have I heard that and thought, eh, whatever. But it just hit me recently that my daughter, when she was born, it was pre-cell phone. Like my wife and I didn't have cell phones when she was born. And to where we are today in technology. And so not having a phone and then for her to grow up, She was a student at Northwest. She earned her degree in communications. And now her job is a social media influencer working in the Department of Marketing for UMKC. And she runs TikTok. That is her job. Like, what the heck? So just be open to those risks and those potential moments where you can step out and do something different and What's also hard about that sometime, I remember, especially early in the career thinking, where are we going to go? What is the next step? In the beginning, my wife and I weren't sure we were going to stay in Maryville. That just kind of ended up where the jobs were at that time. Like she was from St. Louis. She had offers there. I was from Kansas City area. I had offers there, but it it never worked that we both got them at the same time. The reason we're in Maryville and put down roots is because I found a job at Eugene Field and she had the opportunity to get a GA position and start her master's. And then a year later, she found a job at Eugene Field and the roots went deep as soon as we started getting kids in the school system. It just happens. But just know that it's not always going to be this straight path that you know what's what to expect. And then the other fun thing, you know, going back to my oldest daughter talking about her, there were times that we were traveling with my brother and his now husband and going to Colorado every summer. And and one year we wanted to climb a mountain. So my brother and uh, my sister, my oldest daughter, Anna and I set off on this journey to climb a mountain. And you'll be able to see the picture here of my daughter sprawled out on the trail. And this was an important part of the climb. And it's just like any career. When you're climbing a mountain, there's like the summit, that's your goal. And then sometimes there's like a false summit that would be like this part over here. And they usually bring you up to this area that's the saddle. So close to the summit, you work your way up here. But this is a special place because it's the first time you can see over the mountain. Like imagine that song, bear went over the mountain. You get there. And so my daughter is so excited. She goes, oh my gosh, I have arrived. I can see the other side. I'm like, oh my gosh, this view is amazing. Look at that. Because she was losing hope. She was like, we're never going to get there. This is taking forever. And you can see her in this picture. She's laid down and she's just like, success, we made it. And as she's laying there, I started to ask her some questions. Anna, you've done great. How do you feel? I feel amazing that we got here. That's great. That's great. 
Anne, where are you laying? She goes, I'm laying in the middle of the trail that I don't have to walk on anymore except to get back. I'm like, okay, okay. What do you notice about the trail past your head? And she's like, this trail? I'm like, yeah. The one that's going up? I said, yeah. The trail that's going up from where we are. What does that tell you? We're not there yet, are we? No, Anna, we're not. There's a little bit more, but we're so close. Like that's another great metaphor for what the career journey is like, is I'm here now. I've learned all these things. I've accomplished this. What could I do next? What impact could I have? You know, what benefit can I bring to the school or the company, wherever I'm working? There could always be something more. But on the other side of that, finding some balance. More is great, but is it at the expense of your family or your mental health? Or So again, not easy, not simple, not a straight path to where you know exactly what to do. And sometimes you just lay down in the middle of it. And that's what okay. need to. I'll tell you need that. Yes. All right. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good, that's a good place to stop. That's fantastic advice. And it really enjoyed hearing your story. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Yeah. And I, there is one more thing. I don't feel like, you know, I could actually get through this without, you know, putting this up here. So I just want to show one, you know, maybe two more pictures, one picture just kind of showing my whole family and, you know, they're amazing. Um, Our kids are grown. So in this picture, you're going to see from left to right, our son, Henry, who is a sophomore at Northwest right now and getting ready to go from earning his gen eds and start culinary school. So he's kind of starting another journey. Like it's a pathway where it's curving. Um, Our daughter, Anna was at Northwest working and now at UMKC. So she made this leap from small town Maryville where she had grown up to living in the big city. So she lives in downtown Kansas city, just South of the river. So super proud of her. Then I'm in the picture. And then in the middle, you see my new brother-in-law, Ryan, and my brother, Doug. They were just married last year in Maine. So we were super happy to be there to support them. Then my wife, Jennifer, who's a teacher at Eugene Field. And our youngest daughter, Abby, is on the far right there. And she is a senior at Maryville High School and getting ready to start a new journey and starting as a Bearcat next year. So They've all been there with me and supporting everything from the beginning. So I'm super grateful to them. And then there's, you know, a whole slew of pictures on one slide with my dog. And I just can't stop without introducing the world to Lewis. And so this is what I go home to for comfort and renewing my mental health. So thank you for indulging me there, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to leave. That's, without being no, perfect. that's amazing. That's Absolutely. like perfect. Unfortunately, I mean, YouTube if people, I'm going to tell you right now, you got to hop on YouTube and you got to see the photos. Like, this is very important. Like he can talk you through the graphics and he can even talk you through his family, but you got to see the dog. That's Absolutely. really all it boils down to. Thank you both. I appreciate the chance to be on Thank here. you so much. It's been Enjoy. awesome to have you as a guest. All right. Well, that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.